Welcome to Conversations with Big Rich. This is an interview-style podcast. Those interviews are all involved in the off-road industry. Being involved, like all of my guests are, is a lifestyle, not just a job. I talk to competitive teams, racers, rock crawlers, business owners, employees, media and private park owners, men and women who have found their way into this exciting and addictive lifestyle. We discuss their personal history, struggles, successes, and reboots. We dive into what drives them to stay active and off-road. We all hope to shed some light on how to find a path into this world we live and love and call off-road. Whether you're crawling the Red Rocks of Moab or hauling your toys to the trail, Maxxis has the tires you can trust for performance and durability. Four wheels or two. Maxxis tires are the choice of champions because they know that whether for work or play, for fun or competition, Maxxis tires deliver. Choose Maxxis. Dread victoriously. Have you seen Four Low Magazine yet? Four Low Magazine is a high-quality, well-written, four-wheel drive-focused magazine for the enthusiast market. If you still love the idea of a printed magazine, something to save and read at any time, Four Low is the magazine for you. Four Low cannot be found in stores, but you can have it delivered to your home or place of business. Visit fourlowmagazine.com to order your subscription today. On today's episode of Conversations with Big Rich, we have Bryant Blakemore. Bryant's uh, Facebook profile states that he is a first-generation hot rodder, off-road racer, designer, builder, promoter, and driver. I first heard about Bryant with uh, the racing series that he was putting on in Texas, but we'll get into all of that. And uh, Bryant, thanks for coming on board and and being part of uh, our podcast. Yeah, thanks, Rich. I appreciate uh, the invite to be a part of this, and I'm, I'm happy to be here. Well, let's uh, let's jump right in. Um, you're a Texas boy through and through, so uh, tell us where you were born and raised. Sure. I was uh, born and raised down in the Rio Grande Valley. Uh, I was born in Brownsville, and I grew up in a small town called Los Fresnos, which is about 10 miles or so from South Padre Island and about 10 miles or so from the Mexican border with uh, Matamoros. And, uh, you know, spent all my time through high school down there. And then after that, I kind of moved around. I ended back back in Texas uh, a, a few times, uh, spent a little time in Wyoming and things like that. But yeah, I grew up, grew up down in deep, deep South Texas. Okay. Yeah, that's, uh, I like that area down there. I've actually been through that town um we went down to south padre island a couple of times we absolutely the last two years i've been wintering in up in uh port aransas so we like road trips so we're we're always driving around hopefully uh hopefully you didn't get any speeding tickets there in los fresnos that's kind of what they're known for (laughs) no i'm very careful with the speed limits uh just about everywhere i go unless i'm Unless I know the area real well, like I know I can, I know I can hustle along the roads in uh, in Texas pretty good up in the hill country, right? But not yeah. uh, not so much down there, <laughs> <laughs> especially on the weekends. <laughs> definitely, yeah, definitely. So let's talk about those early years. Um, that's a uh, that's a diverse cultural 
area for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It, uh, growing up down in that area, I, I had a, a lot of influence from Mexican culture, you know, being that close to the border and we would go across frequently and eat or hang out or, you know, go to the, the markets down there and whatnot. So I, 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 I'm real thankful that I grew up in a very culturally diverse area and that that led me to have an interest in traveling and seeing other places and not being afraid of, of going places and, and being out of my comfort zone. Uh, as a kid, there was a father son group out of Brownsville that every Labor Day weekend would travel down to upper central Mexico. We would travel about eight hours from the border south and go camping for an extended weekend. Uh, that area through there, we were in uh, China, Linares, Montemorelos, uh, down down in there. We traveled to an area called Tomasopo, which is known for its waterfalls. And so we had a lot of opportunity uh, as as kids growing up to, to be immersed in alternative cultures that were not you know, not American cultures and not our own cultures. And I think, I think for my, myself and my sister as well, I think that really broadened our view on the world and made us more comfortable with, like I said before, doing uncomfortable things. And that being comfortable with Mexico in that kind of way really was a benefit to me years, year, you know, decades later when I started going to Baja, I felt at home in Baja because it reminded me of my childhood growing up and spending time in Mexico and in South Texas and things like that. So, so I'm really, I'm really thankful for growing up in that, in that area. I'm not sure I'll ever move back there, but it's a, it's a great place to be from is what I like to tell people. Right. The, the history down in there with the Mexican culture, but also with the, um, American Texas, um, yes. That you know, I, I've read a lot of the history books and and stuff about that area and the you know the 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 coming of Texas um, and all that. And it's it's really interesting to read about all that and everything that that the Texans went through to to make that area um, what they did. The absolutely the 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 part about Baja, I get that I. My only experience in Mexico is truly with Baja. I've done a little bit just south of uh, of Arizona, but never anywhere else except for like Puerto Vallarta, you know, the right the resort areas. Um, but I love Baja. I love the people. I love the the culture. Um, it's kind of the Wild West, you know. We don't we don't have that kind of. Uh, I mean, we have the terrain in the Southwest, but we don't we don't have that kind of uh, that diversity that's down there. And 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 what I mean diversity is, you know, the the coastals to the mountains to all of that right. mixed up. You know, like like Baja does. I mean, in less right. than a day, you can be, you know, east and west coasts, and that's kind of cool. Oh yeah, yeah. Baja Baja is fascinating in that in that way. You know, going north to south, you get such changes in geology and flora and fauna and everything all the way down. And then east to west, you get changes and and it's all it's it's got almost every type of ecosystem all in this one peninsula. And those of us that 
frequent Baja get to see that and experience it. And it's extremely unique and, and amazing to, to go see. And I, I encourage everyone to go to Baja at least once. Unfortunately, mainland Mexico nowadays is a little more dangerous to, to go exploring and, you know, do the things that, that most of the crowds that we run in do in Mexico. It's not, quite the same place it was when i grew up and i'm i'm sad about that because there are a lot of places in mexico that i would like to share with people but it's not worth the risk to go but fortunately we still have baja and it's got so much culture and history all all in its own right it's an amazing place right and so when you guys would go down you know as down there um when you were a young kid you and your sister and your your dad what was uh well, I I guess you you ended up being able to speak Spanish pretty well. I, I'm I I tell people I know enough Spanish to get in trouble, but not out of trouble. Kind right. of as a joke. <laughs> uh, I, I wouldn't say that I'm fluent or bilingual, but I know enough that I can get by and take care of my business. Most of that is due to just being out of practice. You know, I don't I don't practice my Spanish on a regular basis. When I'm, when I'm in places where that's the prevalent language, I attempt to do all of my communicating in that way, uh, you know. And so I've, I've never gotten to a point where I couldn't figure out what I needed to do or, or how to communicate what was trying to, trying to happen. I wish I was more fluent, uh, you know, and, and truly bilingual that I could switch a conversation midway and not have to slow down. But, uh, but I'm, not, I'm not quite there. I've been out of it, you know, being, being daily spoken. I've been out of Spanish speaking areas for a little while now. Right. So I not as prevalent anymore as it was when I was a kid. Well, the one thing I noticed is that you can you can at least say the names properly with that rolling of the letters and stuff. Um I I can't even pronounce words in English correctly. So <laughs> <laughs> I get down south of the border and I'm like, you know, it's pretty sad. But you know, I try. I try. My limited high school Spanish. Absolutely. Yeah, I took I took a couple of years of Spanish when I was in college. I went to the, the University of Wyoming and uh, first day or two of class when everyone's reading through the books, you know, of course, I don't feel like I, I am fluent in Spanish just because of how I grew up, you know, and knowing what that means. But taking that Spanish class in college in Wyoming. Um, First of all, moving to Wyoming was a culture shock for me. I'd never <laughs> seen people in my life. And, and then taking Spanish there, the teachers looked at me after I read the sentences out of the book, and she's like, you know how to speak Spanish, don't you? And I'm like, well, I mean, kind of, but, you know, whatever. So, <laughs> Yeah, because you were probably enunciating the, the, the words correctly. It was, the, the, it was definitely the, the way that I was speaking it was – coming out uh you know a lot more a lot more of a of a fluid speaker than uh, than some of the other right. some of those other poor farm kids in that in that class <laughs> yeah there's a big difference <laughs> that those parts of the country so let's talk about those early years um did you what were you like in as a student down there was it you know did you participate in um, sports right. and all that kind of stuff, or was there a bigger influence in certain sports, you know, because of the culture down there? Um, so 
junior high and middle school and you know all my all my early education i went to a private school in brownsville from like kindergarten to sixth grade and i was not built for sports i was short and asthmatic and i had problematic knees and things like that so i tried my best but it was never it was never something that i was very good at uh when i played soccer i played goalie because i didn't have to move very far i was also deathly allergic to everything and and uh you know so it kind of it kind of limited some of my some of my abilities in that way uh junior high i was homeschooled seventh and eighth grade my mom wasn't real impressed with the with the school system at the time in my area which is funny because she eventually moved to teaching in that school system in the grades in which i was homeschooled uh you know so hopefully she's making a difference of her own right and then in high school i went to um like i said i i, I lived in a town called los fresnos and then I went to high school in a town called Mercedes, and it was about 60 miles away. And there, there they had a magnet school whose focus was science and engineering. And that's where I went to high school. So we didn't have any sports, um, you know, to, to kind of shed some light on how nerdy I am. I, I lettered in robotics and I was the only person to do that uh, at my at my high school. <laughs> so. so I, I got out of the sports stuff. You know, I was in Boy Scouts. Uh, I made it from Tiger Cubs all the way to Eagle. So I was still active, you know, things of that nature. I did 4-H and FFA and raised raised livestock that way, um, you know, and all, all those things. But through high school, not a lot of sports for me. Uh, I spent my time doing science and engineering type stuff, which is which is kind of how my brain functions, you know, in that, that kind of way. Awesome. Cool. So then... After high school, what did you, what was your, I've, your, what was your, what was your course set? Where were you, right. what, what was your mind at? So after high school, I immediately moved 2000 miles away. I moved to Laramie, Wyoming to attend the, the University of Wyoming. Because of the start, engineering school? Because of the engineering school. I started studying mechanical engineering there. They have a fantastic program and it was one, it was the only college I applied to. I had a pair of teachers, a, a married couple that were teachers in my high school that were from that area and very familiar with that school. And they told me about it and, and suggested I look into it and all that. Being the only four-year university at that level in the state of Wyoming, they got all the funding for those types of programs and whatnot. The student to teacher ratio was very low and tuition out of state for me was basically the same as going to Texas A&M in state if I had stayed in Texas, but it would have been a much larger school and, you know, all just a, a completely different kind of environment. So I, I moved, I moved up to Wyoming right after high school uh, and, uh, and went, went and did, uh, did that program or started, started that program. Didn't graduate. Um, I spent four and a half years. I spent about three three years up there, and then I came back to Texas and went to Texas State for about a year. I struggled a lot with the math. Uh, I I've taken every math class you can take, but I've taken every math class three times. Okay, uh, you know, so I, I I struggled a bit with getting the math done, and frankly, I was running out of money. Um, 
the last couple of years of college I was paying for out of pocket and things of that nature. And it was just getting real expensive uh, to, to do so. Came back to Texas for about a year and a half, went to Texas State and San Marcos for a little while and then went back to Wyoming to try something a little different and see if I could approach uh, an engineering degree in a little different mindset. And uh, through that year, towards the end of that year is uh, when I got a job offer to start working in the oil field. And uh, they, they offered to pay me a healthy amount of money to come work and have a, not necessarily an engineering position, but something similar to that, to that, way of thinking uh in in the field and uh, i've been doing that for the last 15 years and is that how you ended up in the lubbock area or did you work the because that's more permian basin right right so i went from wyoming to midland and uh, i moved to midland um and started working in the oil field down there they actually flew me down from denver and back in one day just for a job interview i felt like that was a pretty positive thing for them to put the money up for. Um, at the time I was working on a ranch outside of Laramie. Uh, I've, I've spent some time on a few ranches in New Mexico and, uh, ran some horses in Texas and whatnot. So my initial background, as far as work went, was out of a saddle, uh, and doing, doing cowboy type work, uh, that I, that I really enjoyed, but it doesn't, doesn't pay well. Um, then I got this offer. My, my uncle got me connected with this company in Midland and suggested I call them and uh, and uh, send them my resume. They liked what they saw, I guess, and flew me down for an interview, offered me a job. I moved down there at the end of the summer after fulfilling my contract with the ranch in Wyoming. And uh, and then, I'm, yeah, I lived in Midland for about seven years or so, maybe five years, and uh, had a small short stint, about six months to a year, in San Antonio, still doing old field type work. And then when I finally got talked back into coming back to working the West Texas region of the, of the patch, uh, I told the company that was hiring me, I said, I am not moving back to Midland. I'll come work in West Texas, but I'm not moving to Midland. Don't want to live there anymore. (laughs) That's how I ended up in Lubbock. And I've been here for about seven years. Okay. And I, I've driven through, that area quite a bit um coming from you know places that we've lived in our events and stuff and getting down to to port a and to mason and stuff but uh it is it's pretty flat Um, it is and i i don't know i don't know if i could live there (laughs) you know to be be completely honest i i love (laughs) texas the hill country um, yeah. you know, I love because we're on the ocean and the bay right. there, you know, down in, uh, in Port Aransas, but man, I don't know if I could live, you know, that like that. I mean, yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely unique. So I've, I've countered that with a couple, a couple different things. One being I bought a house. There's a lake out here in Lubbock that is in a Canyon. And so it's, it's got some terrain. And I, so I bought a house out there and I live at that lake and they actually also have uh, an OHV park there as well. So there's off-roading literally in my backyard. And, uh, you know, so I've got, I've got access to that. I've got access to the water. It's a constant level lake, so it never goes dry. 
you know, and it's big enough to put a wakeboard boat on or it's got a slow side that I paddle board on and do, do a little windsurfing on when I get, when it's not too windy, uh, since I'm a novice at that, uh, you know, so I've kind of countered that, but my, my mindset was I wanted to be close enough to work that it wasn't an ordeal to get to work. Uh, you know, cause I'm usually I'm away from the house two weeks at a time and then I'm home for two weeks. Well, in that two weeks of time, I'm only about an hour and a half or two hours from where I'm actually working. And so if I need to come back home and spin a couple of wrenches on the race truck, or if there's other things going on in town where I need to run home, you know, when I'm off, off duty, uh, I can, I can make that trip. Right. Um, it's also close enough to the desert that it's not, a big ordeal to get out to far West Texas and, you know, where I was putting on my off-road races in Hudspeth County, it's about a five hour drive, four and a half, five hour drive. And, uh, from there, and then it's not too bad to get on the interstate and head West and, you know, go, go to Nevada or California or even down to Baja and whatnot, you know? So I, I felt, I felt it was a, a fair location where there were some interesting things here. It is pretty flat. And it's definitely not the same as living in the hill country or, you know, being near Austin or Dallas or any of the, the, the really big towns, you know, but I've, I've grown to like it. Everything they've got everything I need here. And Lubbock is a secret hot rod town. There's probably 30 shops around here that build hot rods and custom cars. And so the car culture here is awesome. And, and so I, I like it for that as well, even though it's not very well known, you know, looking at it, you don't see it, but once you spend time here, just in the small, uh, industrial complex where my shop is located, there's probably five or seven custom car shops here, not to mention another five, seven or 10 collectors that have, you know, awesome, awesome car collections stashed away in their metal buildings right around where my shop is. So it's, it's really unique in that aspect. And I, I enjoy it. Will I stay here forever? I'm not sure, but for now it, it works and it, it fills a lot of the, the spaces that I needed filled, you know, for, for where I'm living now. Okay. Let's talk about, about off-road. How did you, how did you get involved with, with off-road? Sure. Okay. So that, that's an interesting story. I being in South Texas was not near any type of off-roading except for like, uh, we had mud races, you know, where you'd see guys with, you know, nitro meth powered big block mud cars that are on paddle tires and things like that. That'll that do side by side two up drag racing in the mud. Um, I, I never really participated in that. When I was in high school, I'd go and drive through mud puddles and try to get my truck stuck every now and then. Uh, but it really, I learned quickly that playing in the mud is not that much fun because of everything that comes after that, Right. you know, <laughs> image to parts and it's hard on equipment and, and everything. And I did not grow up in an automotive household. Um, that's why, like you mentioned in the introduction, my, my little tagline is that I'm a first generation of all of these things. Uh, I, I spent my time especially in high school when I had my first vehicle, I spent my time at night outside working on it so I could drive it to school the next day. And I didn't grow up in a mechanic shop or any of that stuff. So I'm, 
I'm mostly self-taught uh, in, in almost everything that I know. It's just from, hey, that can't be too difficult. Let's buy a manual. Uh, you know, back in those days, that there wasn't a whole lot of information on the Internet for those, you know, like YouTube is now. Uh, so I would buy a Haynes manual and it's just nuts and bolts. So take the nuts and bolts off and put the nuts and bolts back on and see if it works and uh, and things like that. So I didn't have a lot of influence that way. However, my entire life has been an obsession with cars, um, you know, and, and four four wheel vehicles. I'm not not really big into bikes. I'm not really big into boats or airplanes. I like cars, cars and trucks, man. That's what it's been my whole life. And my parents knew knew that, you know, everything I had was car themed in some way. And I had binders full of drawings of cars that I did when I was a kid. You know, they obviously are not very high quality or anything, but that's all that's all I thought about and all I was interested in. So they had a family friend in Brownsville, a guy that was from Mexico, and they knew that he had been involved in some motorsports type type stuff. So one day when I was about seven years old, we went over to his house and he sat me down on the couch and was showing me some photographs in a, in a photo album, which for some of the, the younger listeners, you know, it wasn't on Facebook. It was actual printed photos. Yeah. <laughs> He was he was flipping through this book and he was showing me Formula One in Mexico City and NASCAR in Mexico and Porsche Club racing in Mexico. And he actually gave me some souvenirs from those things. I've got a I've got a Grand Prix Mexico Grand Prix license plate hanging on the wall of my shop that he gave me. Well, towards the back of that album, the pictures started getting dustier and dustier. And I don't mean that they were old and collecting dust i mean that the the footage was dusty and i that piqued my interest and what you know what is this and it was old square body chevys and old class 11 volkswagen beetles and he said that's baja and that was the first time that i had ever heard about or learned or been any kind of influenced by baja i didn't even know what it you know what it was and those pictures stayed ingrained in the back of my brain forever and and that's that's the the turning point in my life that that made me put at the very top of my bucket list to race in Baja in my own truck and uh in and so that became my life's goal do that didn't know how wasn't sure how it was going to work but it was constantly there in the back of my brain saying hey you need to go to Baja. Don't forget about Baja, you know, and then finally I started seeing some races on, uh, you know, NBC or wild or wild world, wide world of sports on TV and things like that. And it would come on every now and then we didn't have cable. We just had the, the basic channels, most of which were in Spanish, but every now and then we'd catch a glimpse of something. And all through my years, I just, I kind of just kept it on the back burner and every now and then would research something say, Oh man, that looks cool. I'd like to do this, like to do that. And, uh, and so that's, that's where it started, you know, I was sitting on, sitting on his couch and him showing me that, that book, uh, of pictures and seeing, seeing Baja for the first time that really changed my life. So then you get through high school, you go to college, you come back to Texas and then that's when, uh, when you started getting dust in your veins. Yes. So I moved back to Texas. 
um, start working. I, you know, I bought some t-shirts that had some long travel trucks on them. One was from a company called 4130 clothing. I don't even know if they're still around anymore. And I kept looking into building long travel trucks and things of that nature and, and seeing, seeing how that would work. And my skill set was not real high and I didn't have my own shop at that time. And it was expensive. It was just outrageously expensive. And I was just new to this industry. And so, you know, be, that being the, the, the oil field and I was constantly afraid of being laid off. So I tried not to dump a whole bunch of money into stuff that I didn't know anything about. Well, I got an opportunity and I can't remember exactly how the opportunity came about, but I met a guy in Midland that raced a class seven truck, Roger Lawler. Okay. And he invited him out to an off-road park down in that area in Stanton, Texas, Outback Adventure Park to come see his truck and maybe take a ride in it, you know, and, and whatnot. And so I did that and it was incredible. And, uh, you know, being, being involved in that a couple months prior to that, I, I flew out to Vegas for my birthday. I went out there by myself and there was an off-road race going on in prim. I don't remember what race it was. I, I can't remember, but I said, okay, it's my birthday. I'm going to do this for myself. So I went to Vegas. I did the whole Vegas thing. I rented a 1952 Jaguar and drove that for a week and drove it all the way out to Prim to this desert race and got to be in close proximity with trophy trucks and all that kind of stuff. And it was as exciting as I had always imagined it would be. And that told me, keep, keep going. Cause this is, this is what you think it is and you should be a part of this met with Roger, went out and tested his truck and he invited me to help him, uh, pit, be part of his pit crew at some local Texas races, which up until that point, I didn't know were a thing. You know, I didn't know that we had desert racing in Texas and not only did we have it in Texas, but we were racing outside of Odessa. So right, literally in the backyard in that area, 20 minutes, 20, 20, 30 minutes from the house. So went out there, did that. This is amazing. That was roughly 2014, 2015 or so. And uh, that year, Roger asked me if he saw my enthusiasm when I was helping him pit. I helped him pit at the TDRA races there in Odessa and in um, at the Texana Ranch in Blackwell. And he saw my enthusiasm and, and came to me and said, hey, I, I want to start my own desert racing association. Do you want to be a part of that? And it I mean, he didn't even have to ask. It was immediately. Yes, let's do that. Now, my my automotive and performance experience before this point had been in in the diesel world. I'd spent about 10 years doing diesel performance stuff, uh, tuning a couple trucks, building a couple things and putting on events. Uh, one of the most notable things that I did was in 2012, I brought a seven second four cylinder turbo diesel tube chassis carbon fiber body truck to the United States to race at the National Hot Rod Diesel Association World Finals all the way from Thailand. And I found these guys on the Internet. I saw a picture. I started pursuing that picture. And eventually got in contact with the team, 
fortunately with someone that spoke English because I don't speak Thai. And uh, these guys put together this tube chassis and flew it to the U.S. and raced it in Ennis, Texas, and clicked off seven-second quarter-mile passes in a in a truck that had never been to the states, and for a team that had never been to to the United States before. And so I'd, I'd been involved in some pretty wild undertakings, uh, mostly just out on my own accord. And whenever I tell people my ideas, most people are like, ah, that'll never happen. You're crazy. And that just pushes me to make sure that it gets completed um, in some way or another. So when Roger brought me the idea of starting an association, I was absolutely in for that. And so 2015, we formed the Tejas Off-Road Racing Association. 2015, I also called a couple of my buddies up and I said, hey, do you guys want to go race in Baja? And I knew they had the means, both time and financially and uh, and the interest. And they said, yep. And I said, okay. So I sold a thousand horsepower truck, street truck that I owned. And I took a big chunk of that money and we went and bought our Dodge that we, our class eight Dodge that we race um, in, uh, in Baja and everywhere else. We bought that in 2015 as well. And we actually drove all the way to Canada to get it and import it and, uh, and, and all that. So, like I said, off-road racing was, was in my brain the whole time. And this was what I wanted to be involved in for life. And when I had the opportunity to get my, my feet wet, I jumped in head first and, you know, I just, I just went straight in and I've been in ever since. And I, I don't have many complaints about it. <laughs> Good. Well, I have a question. Why sure. Canada for the truck? Good. That's a good question. So when we started our search to find our truck that we wanted to race, we had a few criteria. None of us had a whole lot of experience in this sport. Uh, none of us had actually ever done it. Uh, I had the most experience by just helping a, a pit crew and going to one or two races. But outside of that, we knew we knew we wanted a truck that was already legal to race. And we were initially shooting for score. So we wanted a score legal truck, one that had history. We wanted a V8, of course, because who doesn't want a V8? Right. And we wanted a pickup truck because we're from Texas and we drive pickup trucks. So those those were our requirements, and then we put a budget on it of approximately twenty to twenty five thousand dollars. And I posted on Race Desert, "Hey, this is what we're looking for. We've got cash. We're ready to go." Most people were like, "Oh, you'll never find that. You'll never find that." My response to them was, "You really don't know me very well. I have a lot of patience when it comes to shopping for the right deal. I can wait." And, uh, and so it, we just started thumbing through the ads and I was actually coming back from Sierra Blanca where we were scouting one of our race courses for Torah. I was with Roger. We were coming back late at night and one of my partners in the race program, Jared sent me an ad on race desert. And he said, man, I think you would have said something if you had already seen this. And I said, uh, what is it? And I looked at it and it was our truck. It was a three quarter ton four-wheel drive, Dodge Ram, crew cab. It was like an 03 or an 04. And it was, it had Baja 1000 experience. It had raced the score 1000 four times, I think. 
And I said, man, that is, that's perfect because all three of my, or all two of my partners in the race program, as well as myself, all had experience with third gen Dodges. They were familiar to us. Uh, this one was a Hemi and we were diesel guys, but I felt like that was probably a good compromise, less weight, no forced induction, fewer things to go wrong with it, you know, so good. That was good on all, all accounts. And I read through the ad. I said, man, this thing looks awesome. And it's already scored tagged. I think this is right. They were asking 25 grand for it. And I thought, well, that's, that's the edge of our price limit, but let's just see what's going on. And then I read in the ad that that was 25 K Canadian dollars. Right. So it puts it well, well within the budget. Oh yeah. That's 195 at that time. Yep. And I couldn't find the guy's phone number fast enough. At that <laughs> I called him immediately. Uh, I called Richard up there in Canada and I, you know, going, going to Canada didn't scare me. I like an adventure and I, I especially like an adventure for the right deal. And this was looking like it was the right deal. So I called Richard and I said, Hey, you've got this truck for sale. I'm interested in it. Can you tell me about it? You know, what's the deal? And so he gave me the rundown, told me about his team's experience in Baja and everything that they'd done and that they were just kind of growing out of it, moving on to different things. And I said, I get it. You know, no big deal. I said, I want the truck, but I've imported race cars into the United States before. It's going to take me a couple of months to do the paperwork. Do I need to send you a deposit? You know, what What do we need to do to so you don't sell this truck before I'm ready to actually come up and get it? And he asked me, he said, well, what are you going to do with that truck? And I said, well, my team and I are going to go race in Baja. We're going to go race the 1000. And he said, nope, it's yours. No deposit. Tell me when you want it and and it'll be here. And uh, so I said, that is that's incredible. Took me three months to get all the paperwork settled. We drove up there in uh, November, uh, right around Thanksgiving. And it was below below zero and i test drove this thing in that guy's neighborhood with snow and ice on the ground and all i had on was a helmet and the carhartt jacket and it was up until that point the best day of my life <laughs> and, and then uh you know we bought it i talked him down a little bit on the price so i got an even better deal on it he threw in some extra radios and other equipment that he had and uh and we we bought ourselves a, a race truck let's go racing boys and uh did you take a trailer with you we did yep we yeah. we took a trailer had a, a gooseneck trailer that we drove up there and uh despite canada being absolutely frozen the worst weather we had on the whole trip was about 90 miles from lubbock uh outside of amarillo where the roads were completely iced over and we ended up driving home in four low the whole way it was awful <laughs> I've been through that area with my semi truck in snowstorms. Not fun. No, no, it's it gets pretty sketchy. And we were trying to take back roads and whatnot. It was you know one one o'clock to three o'clock in the morning, and it was man the last the last hundred miles of our trip. We went all the way to Canada and back with no problem. And the last hundred miles of the trip were the the roughest part of the whole journey. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And what part of uh, Canada did you purchase it in? We we were in Calgary. Okay, we bought bought that truck out of out of Calgary. Yep, and they, those guys had raced it, and every time they raced it, they hauled it back and forth every time. 
And, uh, you know, I thought it was funny before we even get to Baja, we've already done 1500 miles with this truck just to get it home. And, uh, you know, and then, and then another 15 to 2000 miles to get it to Baja before we even think about getting the, the, the tires in the dirt and actually start racing, you know, so there's, there's a lot of miles involved in that thing before we even started racing it. Right. And what was the, uh, what year did you, uh, did you purchase that truck? You said 15? 15. Yep. The same year that that we started, uh, Tora, uh, the race association was the same year I bought the truck. I dove in head first, man. That's jumping in with both feet. Yep. Yes, sir. So then you, you guys started Tora, you went, went to get ready to go racing. Let's talk a bit about Tora and then we'll get into the race program and carry that on through that first year. How many races did you put on with Tora? We we put on four races. We founded Tora in 2015, and we started putting on our events in 2016. Our very first race was a 400-mile race on a 100-mile loop in out of Sierra Blanca, Texas. It's right on Interstate 10, about 88 miles to the east of El Paso, and it is incredible it is i call sierra blanca and i i i hope that we can continue this growth but sierra blanca is the ensenada of texas in in my opinion you know you could come out there on non-race weekends and you'd see kids riding their bikes around town with race team shirts on and and before before we went there nothing like this had ever been done in that area it was all completely new and the race course that we had developed, our, our big loop, ran from town underneath the interstate south towards the Mexican border so that at points of, of the race course, the only thing in your windshield was Mexico. And it was mountainous Mexico in, up off in the, in the distance. And then you would run, you would make a turn up at Indian Hot Springs Ranch, and you would turn and run up the Mexican border right along the Rio Grande for about 10 or 15 miles. Then you would jump in a sandy river bottom for about 33 miles, cross back underneath I-10, and then you would pick up uh, old El Paso Highway, which is an abandoned stretch of road that's all degraded and chopped up now, and that would be a triple-digit run back into town and then make your loop. Uh, Then we had a, a couple jumps set up, in the middle of town in their floodway right in front of the city park. And, uh, and all of our events were kind of centered around some sort of community event, a festival of some kind or something like that. So we had multiple things going on at a time, not just individual races. Uh, but yeah, we put on four races in our first year in 2016 and, uh, it was great. It was, it was amazing. It was the coolest thing I'd ever done up until that point in my life. Right. And so was that private property? I know Texas is like 98% private property. Right. So yes. you were running on different ranches? We So we ran on county property. We utilized some of the county roads that are out there. And some of it was graded and pretty fair surface, but quite a bit of it gets washed out and rutted and boulders moved around. And so some of it turns into, into some pretty gnarly terrain. 
So we ran on county property on the county roads. And then we also utilized land that was owned by the state itself through the general land office. Okay. The general land office owns about 13 million acres of Texas. And most of it is in areas that are not useful for a lot of things and pretty uninhabited. And that land gets leased back uh, by Texans for or other people for ranching and hunting and oil and gas and things of that nature. Um, so we utilized some of that land and we had a good relationship with the GLO at that time. And, and most of the river bottom and that property was GL, officially GLO land. Of course, the person that was leasing it was in on it as well. And we were fully insured and all of the things that you have to be to do this, uh, you know, uh, as, as legitimately as possible and all that. But a lot of the land where we were off of County Road was uh, GLO property is the person that actually owned it. Now it was being leased out by other people and we had everybody, you know, on, on board at the time okay. uh, for it. That's, that's kind of how we had most of those properties structured. We did race on some other properties. Um, we put on a race down in Laredo, Texas, down in South Texas, that was a private ranch. And, and of course, seeking out new private properties is always at the forefront of my mind uh, when it, when it comes to the, to the association, but you're right. That's one of the unique things about Texas, and it's it's good and bad, right? Is <laughs> is most of Texas is privately owned? It's bad because most of Texas is privately owned, which means you have to find out who owns it and have different types of conversations with them. It's good because we don't have federal influence on our land use, and we don't have a whole lot of state influence on our land use. And if there is a private owner to a piece of property, Texas is very good about taking care of the liability for their landowners. What I mean by that is that in Texas, uh, now this is not you know straightforward legal advice, but in layman's terms, in Texas, if you as the landowner invite people onto your property for an event and those people are stupid and do stupid things and get hurt, well, that's their fault for being stupid, not your fault for allowing that activity. Right. You don't that's take the, automatic liability. Exactly. Exactly. Now, states like New Mexico, it is the complete opposite of that for any private land that you can find, which is hard to find in New Mexico to begin with. But their liability is the complete opposite. It's the landowner's responsibility to make sure the stupid people don't get involved and do stupid things. Right. You know? I like the Texas law. I learned about that in the early 2000s um, when I put my first rock crawl on down in uh, down in Mason. Yes. Yep. Yeah. And that's so that th those few things are very attractive to me for Texas becoming the next frontier of off road racing. And not just by putting on races, but I mean by that, all of the ancillary things that are involved in outdoor recreation as a whole. Texas has an opportunity here to become the next home for all of this because of how difficult things are becoming out west, you know, and whatnot. And it's going to be different, and it requires an immense amount of education in 
landowner for landowners and for participants and things of that you know nature there's a there's a lot to happen but that's kind of what i've structured torah to be doing now is to be building things in a way that we are setting up a foundation for the entire outdoor recreational industry to find a home in texas sweet sweet now that that sierra blanca area that was uh I know that Ultra Four went and yes. raced in that area, and yes. was that very similar to the same racetrack? Or oh, oh yeah, oh okay. yeah, that was almost one hundred percent my race course. Okay, the the uh, the drivers really enjoyed really enjoyed that area. Absolutely, yeah, it's in, it's incredible. It had very similar feel to being in Baja more than anywhere else I've seen in the United States when it comes to being able to race. The the color of the dirt and the way that it changed to different colors, the types of plants that you saw, the views out of your windshield, uh, some of the animals being able to be involved right in the middle of town in a, in a small community, you know, all of those things played together and actually being within a stone's throw of Mexico, all of those things together created a magic that is not found, at least in that I have not found in, in off-road racing anywhere else in, in the United States. And it's, a, it's an extremely special place. They added a couple little different segments for the Ultra 4 event um, in order to cater more to those types of vehicles. Like there was some waterfall crawls and and uh, some some big bouldering areas and things like that, but but for the most part, that was my my ninety seven hundred mile loop that that we had been racing on for a couple of years. Awesome. So then, tell us about your race program and what uh, I know that you have a um, charity or a foundation that you're yeah. that you're working toward. Talk about yep. all that. Sure. Okay. So like I said, 2015, we bought the truck. 2016, we started racing. And I I had in mind that we needed to learn before we just jumped straight in and went to Baja. None of us had any experience doing this. And we didn't have experience with each other in this type of a situation. You know, the three of us were friends, but we weren't in a lot of high stress, expensive, time-consuming things together. So we needed to make sure that we learned all of that. So what I proposed to the team and what we ended up doing was racing in 2016 just in Texas. And we raced two series in Texas. I also felt it important that we that to prove that a privateer team could afford to race two full series in Texas. And that meant that we raced the TDRA, which I participated in driving the race truck. And that my team without me raced in my series, uh, Torah. And, and we did eight races that year. We raced every single event in Texas. And I, I stepped out from the team when they raced Torah because of conflict of interest. And because there, there's no way that I could do a good job putting on an event if I'm inside a race car racing the event. 
true. You know, that's not that's not fair to all the all the participants and to the event as a whole. So I I stepped back from that and I gave the reins to the team and I said, y'all make it happen. And I'm not I'm busy, you know. And if you you know if you, of course if you have race logistics problems during the race, I'll be there to help. But outside of that, you guys have to figure out pitch strategy and all of that kind of stuff without me. And and they did and they did great. My team ended up taking first in points championship in Torah, and we took second in points in uh, in TDRA. Our first year, we had one DNF, and that was the only DNF uh, for basically the life of the truck as we've had it up until this currently, uh, you know, and so we had a very, very strong finishing rate and we finished first or second in our class almost every, every race. Uh, that's where we learned about how to pit and what to prep and how to prepare our very first race. We took a gamble on some U-joints in the front stub shafts of the front axle. And we did not replace them, and it bit us. They broke, and it and it it ended our race. It you know it damaged some ball joint pieces and whatnot at our very first race. And we said, okay, now we know we need to pay a little more attention to to some of these other pieces and make sure that that they are in good condition and change the driving habits of the vehicle. You know, we don't want to be racing in four-wheel drive if we don't need it and we definitely don't want to you know be jumping the truck and landing under throttle because it's basically a stock three-quarter ton dodge with some good shocks on it there's really everything on the truck for the most part is is off the shelf uh, as far as the suspension goes there's nothing super fancy about it and it weighs nine thousand pounds so we have to be considerate in the way that we drive the truck and the team strategy is that our most important goal is to get to the checkered flag. It doesn't matter what place we finish. It, none of that matters. The most important goal is that if we start a race, we finish a race. That's the number one priority. And the chips will fall where they may after that, mainly due to just the attrition of the sport. If we can keep our truck running and going, it will do better than most because it will survive. And that that's how we built our mindset, especially with our plans to go to Baja and try to race a thousand miles. You know, we we needed to make sure that the, the vehicle was being dealt with in a manner in which it would get to the finish line. Number one priority. Nothing else matters except getting to the end of the race on time. That's it. Yeah. You know, there's a so lot of teams that are out there that are, that are super fast, but they're the first one to the wreck. Right. Yep. There's, you know, there's, and there's a lot of people that are new to the sport and they get wide eyed about it and they think, okay, I need this horsepower and I need this wheel travel and I need this and I need that. And I'm going to go spend all this money, but they don't have any foundation of a good pitch strategy of how to chase of proper prep techniques of what spares to carry of being able to manage the vehicle in different types of terrain and to keep the vehicle alive. And so I, I, I recommend whenever I see new people coming into the sport and they're like, I want to go race the Baja 1000 and we're just going to jump in and do it. 
I say, okay, but if you want to do it successfully, spend a little time at some smaller local races first and get, get your bearings there and learn about everything that you can about how the vehicle works and how your team works together. I, I don't discredit people that want to go race the, the score 1000 as their very first and only desert race. That is an awesome thing to do. But if you really want to do it successfully, I feel like you can, you can do that. And then your first time at score can be a finish and not a, what the hell happened when we blew the car apart at race mile 100 and it's in 65 pieces now, you know? <laughs> so, Oh, that's, that was the strategy that i put together with my team and that we have kept with ever since and uh, and even even when i bought my teammates out and started racing all on my own i keep the same thing i'm not an ultra competitive person if i get past let them pass because they're going to make a mistake and i'm going to keep at a pace at which i'm comfortable i don't suffer from the red mist you know it doesn't descend on me when someone tries to get around me let them go. My truck is slow and heavy, but it'll get there. And that's, that's the most important thing for me. Yeah. The, I think too many people watch Robbie Gordon videos, right? you know, and they all think, okay, you know, I gotta, I gotta race at full throttle. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and it's, it's taken, Robbie has years and years and years of experience, you know, racing and, and he understands his vehicle. And a lot of the racing that he's doing now seems to be kind of like product testing type things, you know? And so he's pushing his vehicles in a very different manner than people that are just coming into the sport and being introduced to it, you know? And so that's, that's always my, my recommendation is race some local stuff first, get a feel for it, understand your vehicle, find the weak links in the vehicle, in yourself and in your team, and then take on Baja and you will be successful rather than spending all of that money to go there and fail immediately, you know, right out of the gate because it's a whole nother animal to participate in that type of an event. And, uh, and you can, you can do it successfully and no one will count you any different in that it wasn't your first try. Right. You that's, know, that that's what we other- tried to do with, with dirt riot. When we started doing the dirt riot racing besides just the rock crawls and, right. you know, it was that, entry level, get your feet wet, learn how to race, learn what it takes, learn your crew, learn your car. And that's why, you know, we never ran courses. I think our longest course was like nine and a half miles. Right. And that was on 240 acres or something. So, I mean, it was a big double horseshoe, you know, um, a horseshoe inside of itself, basically, is how the track was laid out. So the teams could watch their car for a lot of the way, you know, the spectators could watch, but it was in a small area and we got nine and a half miles out of it, but it was, uh, it, the very terrain that we tried to throw at people, you know, it was so that they could go eventually to KOH King of the Hammers and be successful. Cause we saw so many people, you know, spend all that money to go to KOH. And then, you know, if they made it two or 20 miles, you know, and they'd spent $25,000 to go race. Oh, yeah. Yep, absolutely. It was, uh, you know, it was really depressing for them. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and a lot of people can uh, end up throwing in the towel at that point. 
Absolutely. And, and, and I don't feel like they need to, you know, I feel like off-road racing has an opportunity for everyone. If you see it once and you have any interest in motorsport, don't ever try it because you'll give up all your other hobbies to do that. And, uh, you know, and, and so there's, there's opportunity for everyone, but if you dump all of this money and all of this time and effort in, into it without proper preparation at the beginning, and then you come away with a broken car that costs half to twice as much what you spent to get there to fix, uh, that's, that's major discouragement, yes. you know, and that it doesn't have to be that way. And no one will think lesser of you if you go to Baja as your second or third or fourth or fifth, or in our case, Baja was our ninth race, you know, after having our truck, no one is going to think any lesser of you because of the challenge that it is. In fact, you will impress more people to go having being prepared and make it all the way. than you will just throwing all this energy at it and only making it 20 miles. Well, at least you tried. Uh, that's not really the way that, off-roaders kind of kind of think you know the trying is good but the getting to the end is is the real win is getting all the way to the end right that's the real yeah i i can remember I've, I've told this story before we were uh at mike's sky ranch um mm-hmm. pre-running the thousand i was with uh, pistol pete's team and there was some guys there from canada that were racing quads and right. they were, you know, they were convinced it was their first race. And these guys were convinced that, of course, they were going to win their class and that they were so prepared and all this kind of stuff. And BJ Baldwin was there and we were, t- and we were talking about, you know, I was talking to these guys and they were, you know, so convinced. And I said, you know, the, the thing you have to remember when it comes race day is when you see all the lights come up behind you, which you will. Yep. And yeah. and it looks like there's you know six trains on your ass. Yeah. I said, yeah. pull over and let them all go by. Yep. Don't absolutely. try to stay out in front of the trophy trucks. And the guy, these guys were like, oh, the trophy trucks will never catch us. And that caught <laughs> BJ's you know awareness. And right. he was like, I, I we asked I asked him. I said, you know how how fast did you come in on the road? And they were talking about how fast they were driving. And I looked at BJ and I said, so how fast did you come in on the road in your pre-runner? Yeah. And he goes, oh, about twice that. And they were like, there's no way. So BJ took a couple of them for a ride because they had that um, three-seater pre-runner. So he took a couple of them for a ride and they went back up over the hill, you know, toward Valley T and then came back. And uh, when the guys got there, they were like, holy shit. You know, yeah, <laughs> and they were amazed. And he goes, he goes, you know, this this truck is only like seventy five percent of what my race truck is, right? And yep. you know that that then gave them, you know, that fear that they needed to have that when those light when those lights caught you in the middle of the night, that you know, yep. it was time when you saw that city pull up behind you, it was time to get out of the way. Right. Right. Yep. Yeah. Like I said, I don't, I don't discourage anybody from getting into off-road racing however they want to, but I, but I really, really try to push preparation 
in starting with one smaller event to get your bearings, you know, to really understand how this thing works, you know, because once once you're out there, especially in Mexico, one of the unique things about off-road racing is that it is literally life or death when you're out there. You know, it could be days or weeks if you have a come off before anyone finds you or knows that you're missing even, you know, it, it could be a while. And, and so being as prepared as possible. And I guess a lot of this is, is my, my uh, inner Eagle scout talking, you know, be prepared, right. But as prepared as possible before you hit the ground out there is just critical in what it can do for your overall performance. Once you're there, you know, and, to keep your mind at ease that you're not worried about things as they come up because you've already thought of that. You've already considered that, you know? And so that's, that's really important and something that I try to try to help guys out that are wanting to get started in the sport. And I, like I said, I've, I had no experience in this when I started, you know, and I'm not a professional at any means now I've, but I've been doing this and been completely involved in the sport for the last seven years I mean, aside from work, it is the only thing that I do. And and uh, and so seeing new people come in is exciting. But I but I try to impart what things I've learned along the way. And the biggest one, like I said, is just slow down, take your time, be prepared, try some local stuff first before you start, you know, trying to trying to take that big bite at the end there. And you'll have a much more successful time of it. Yeah, I I agree. And I think that what I always recommend people do is at least get to an off-road race, a big one, you know, whether yep. it's like a best in the desert or, or the, the, you know, the score races down in Mexico or whatever, and try to, to find somebody that's racing that you can go down and pit with. Absolutely. You know, almost, almost all the teams need help in some way, yes. especially, if you're willing to volunteer your time and your energy to get there, you know, if, if you can afford it, tell the team, Hey, I'll pay my way. I'm there. Just tell me what you need from me and I'll be there. And, and it's, it's unlikely that you won't find anybody to, to, uh, to help with that type of mindset. Correct. And that, that then, you know, if you're, if you're looking to, to buy a car or to build a car or whatever to go race, you know, get that, that volunteer experience under your belt first so that you know what you're biting into. For and, sure. And then figure out what class you want to enter in. And that's, that's going to have a lot to do with, uh, with your pocketbook. Yep. Your checking account, you know, your, uh, your, you know, how, how big of a loan you can take against your house you know, that kind of thing, um, because it is life-changing. And once you make that commitment, you got to realize that no matter what you buy, the likelihood of getting the money back out of it is, oh, uh, you know, you're going to have to look at at least 50% loss. Absolutely. Yeah. So Absolutely. you have to be ready for it. Just don't spend it thinking, no, oh, this is what I want to go do and do it. Um, you know, I, at least that's my opinion on how people should get started. If they want to jump in with both feet, great. It just doesn't seem to work real well for a lot of people. Yeah, it's it's definitely a challenge, you know, for people to with with no experience in it to go, especially 
when they when they want to go and their first race is the score 1000 you know that that that's an overwhelming event as it is for even seasoned professionals and and to to make that your goal to be your very first time ever doing anything that's a lofty goal and i i applaud people that can do it but if you want if you want to guarantee your success that you'll make it to the end then uh, then there's a couple different ways to go about that i feel you know right i mean people they everybody sees those trophy trucks and goes man i want to drive one of those and that's right. that's a lofty goal but the guys that are racing in that class the majority of them are going down there with 40 guys or oh yeah more. it's huge crew huge you know? crew and and it was like when i when was helping with Pete you know if we had 10 guys down there man we were doing great yeah yeah and uh and trying to run with those big boys with those big budgets yeah was uh was difficult it's a lot that's a lot for sure for sure yeah so let's talk about how you're uh how you're doing this sure sure so um just real real quick to get us from the end of 16 till now uh in 20 in 2016 i went to baja for my first time ever uh a guy found me on the internet which is kind of a weird thing to say uh i guess but he uh somehow learned about me and invited me to go chase for him for the nora mexican 1000 and i said absolutely yes what i need to do and he said just get to san diego i'll cover the rest i said done bought my plane ticket immediately and that was an awesome experience. I love the Nora race. Uh, the truck only made it 40 miles outside of Ensenada before it was hydrolocked, and we packed it up and left it in Ensenada. But we continued down the rest of the peninsula with all the other race teams, and I got to help out with other teams and, and see different things. When I came back from that trip, I told my team, the Nora 1000 is what we're going to race. That's going to be our race in Mexico. I think it is the best way to see Baja and be involved in racing and enjoy it right um, that's a that's a stage race where yes. it's multiple days um, right two to three hundred miles a day yep five days of racing the shortest day is like 175 and the longest day is like 420 so it's it's a lot of racing we covered 1300 miles uh in the in the racetrack by the time we were done but we got to enjoy baja as a whole and it doesn't come with the same stresses as the score 1000 yeah, so we did. I, I've been up for like forty-eight hours straight during the thousand, the score one thousand. It's very taxing. The way that it's been described to me, that I use it to describe to other people, is that the score one thousand is equivalent to being barely an amateur boxer stepping in the ring with a pro boxer and getting the crap kicked out of you for. 48 hours and then going home and then the nora 1000 is roughhousing with your buddies in the parking lot and then going into the bar and having a good time you know (laughs) much more enjoyable much more enjoyable uh you know and so 17 we prepped our truck after i did a victory roll in it and destroyed the entire body uh (laughs) And uh, so we had to put a new body on the truck and and fix a couple things there. And then we prepped it. And in 
April of 2017, my team went down to Baja and we raced the Nora Mexican 1000 and we finished uh, seventh in our class. And I think somewhere in the 30s overall, but I'm not sure that that's right. I don't remember what our overall standing was, but we made it every single mile, 1300 miles uh, in the in the race truck. And that crossed off the very top of my bucket list. Race my own truck in Baja. Done. And uh, and that was that was incredible to to be able to do that. And then I said, okay, well, now what? And so we continued. Uh, 2018, we raced the Mint 400, and we took fourth in our class on two broken leaf springs. We broke both rear leaf springs, but still managed to finish uh, in that race. At the end of 2018, my team had kind of moved on to different things. They had they had other things that they were kind of more more interested in, and so. I bought them out of the race program, bought my two partners out in the race program, and I also bought my partner in Tora out and acquired Tora 100% on my own. That was uh, financially very expensive. I can imagine. Now, <laughs> is now I'm I'm uh, I'm the sole provider for both the association and the race team, and I I have little to no monetary sponsors for any of it um you know I've, I've i'm partnered with a lot of great people for product but but not for the finances and you know i'm super thankful for the product because it helps get the truck running but there is an immense amount of cost that happens on the other side of all that uh you know and so i've acquired that on my own which means that i only get to race my truck right now about once a year um 2019 didn't race 2020 didn't race couldn't afford it had the truck it just sat it sat for three years and then i raced it at the 2021 mint 400 which was in december because of all the covid stuff um it was a thrash to get the truck ready and like i said it had been sitting for three years i had made a few pretty significant changes to it in my prep time and we pulled it onto the trailer and actually up to the start line with uh, a large percentage of uh, seafoam fuel injector cleaner still in it because it was not running on all cylinders when we started the race. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we uh, we did that. Um, my pit crew was amazing. I, I had been part of a Facebook group called Dodge Trucks Extreme, which is a bunch of uh, Dodge and Mopar guys that really enjoy the desert. We've got, you know, long, long travel, three quarter and one ton trucks. Uh, and we do, we do a lot of stuff out in the desert and, uh, and all that through with uh, Theron suspension trucks and some Carly suspension stuff and whatnot. So all of those guys got excited about me racing a Dodge and they pitched in to be my pit crew. So whenever I roll into an event, it is, only Mopar. There's nothing else allowed in my pits except for Mopar vehicles. And it looks amazing when all of us roll down the highway together and pull into the pits together. And we've got all these trucks on, you know, with big reservoir shocks sticking out of them and, and fiberglass and all that. And we're racing a three quarter ton Dodge with big shocks and fiberglass and everything. It's a, it's, it's quite a sight to see. And I, I enjoy it immensely. Uh, so those guys helped me out in December. 
and we made it a lap and a third. And I raced class eight at this race and we raced on Saturday with the unlimiteds. So I was behind all the trophy trucks and I was ahead of the class 10 cars for about the first 30 miles. And then they all caught me and went around. Um, my truck, again, like I said, I was still burning out cylinders to keep them clean at, you know, for the first half of the, the first lap. On the second lap, we came around, uh, made it about 30 miles. And I, I said to my co-driver, I said, man, I'm going to tell you something that sounds really, really odd, but I think we have four flat tires right now because it's just dragging dirt and everything up. And uh, I said, I know that sounds impossible, but I think that's the situation. I'm going to pull over, get out, tell me what you see. He gets out and he's like, man, all the tires are good. And then uh, he walked around to the front of the truck and he said, hey, turn the steering wheel. So I shook the wheel back and forth and it opened up the front differential and there was just a sheet of diff fluid pouring out onto the ground. And we had split the front differential open because the ruts had gotten so deep that my truck solid axle on 37s, I was dragging the front axle through everything hard enough and hitting hard pack in in that that center raise that it would slow the truck down like two miles an hour every time we'd hit something and and it was just too much for the truck and we looked back down the course and you could see where the front diff had dug in and the rear diff had dug in and was leaving lines down the race course <laughs> from all it was it was just too much for the truck and a lot of that mid 400 course is difficult to move off of the course because there's giant rocks on the sides of it. You know, that, that course, I had forgotten what it was like having raced it, you know, three years earlier, but that course can get brutal, especially when you're chasing down 1200 horsepower, all wheel drive trophy trucks on 42s. And you're just in an old farm truck trying to get out there and pasture and feed some cows, you know? Right. So. <laughs> So that, that ended our race there, and uh, that started this process of rebuild that I'm doing now, and that started everything that we're working on right now. We didn't get to race in 2022, um, wasn't able to get the truck put back together in time. When I came back from the Mint, I made a deal with a local dealership, and they partnered with me to upgrade to a 6.4 liter V8, a brand new 392 cubic inch scat pack Hemi that we've got in the truck. We also put my truck as it sat with the old 5.7 on the dyno and found out that I raced the mint with 145 horsepower to the wheels. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that explains a lot of, of the drivability issues I was, I was having. Uh, we, we're putting in a brand new motor. We're putting in a brand new eight-speed automatic. Uh, I've re-geared the truck. I've got 40-inch tires. I got a spool in the back. I have a different style front truss on a fresh front axle so that it shouldn't uh, bulldoze the dirt so hard. It should allow some of it to kind of flow through and, and, uh, and break it up a, a little better as we pass through. Um, 
you know, so it's going to be a whole nother animal by the time we get out there in March. And, uh, and in doing that last year, I was, you know, or, or this year, rather, I wanted to pair my race program with some philanthropy work. I, I wanted to use this as an opportunity to help some community. And I, I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do and how I wanted to do it that way. Uh, I like to show the sport to new people. And so oftentimes my navigators are first time racers or people that have some sort of social media influence or whatever, so that they can tell the story and I can provide an opportunity for storytelling, uh, you know, about what we're doing and how we're doing it and, and their experiences in it. Uh, at the mint last year, I had a, uh, a podcast host from the truck show podcast, Jay Tillis. He, he was one of my co-drivers in the truck and got to experience it. He had never done anything like that before. And, uh, and so that was neat providing that opportunity. My truck is not extremely difficult to drive and I'm not trying to brag or anything about it, but I can drive it by myself. You know, I don't particularly need a co-driver who is super intense because I don't go that fast and it's not that much of a, of a challenge to drive my vehicle and I'm not ultra competitive. So if I have a map and know where the course is, I can get through it. It's not a big deal. So that allows me to put people in and teach them navigating things while we're racing and give them that experience. So I, I, I wanted to do that. And then I wanted to use that also for, like I mentioned before, some kind of charity work. Initially, my thoughts were to try to get, uh, and this is still a goal of mine, but to try to get Mike Rowe from Dirty Jobs in my truck, because I feel like my race program, everyone that's involved in my team, my truck itself represents blue collar industry. And off-road racing as a whole is built upon blue collar dollars. You know, even the big race teams, you know, the high dollar teams, their money's made in construction or in concrete or in, you know, what, whatever. It's all blue collar trade stuff for the most part. And so there's a connection there. And I wanted to raise money for uh, his foundation, MicroWorks. So maybe word will get around at some point and I can make that happen. Uh, but that was my initial thought was to was to kind of add add some sort of charity to my race. And I wanted it to be blue color uh, in nature. Well, halfway through this past year. I had some things going on in my personal life where I ended up seeking some professional guidance and I learned that I'm autistic. And so that that was uh that was an interesting revelation and it was it it was an enormous relief to me because i could go back and explain most of my life uh you know the way i grew up and and all of my experiences and the way that i had viewed them and experienced them knowing that my brain operates differently than other people's brains explained everything. And it was, 
an, an immediate relief to me. I akin it to if you like untie a really tight knot in a rope, you get that slack in the rope and it feels pretty good. Or if you, if you put a key in a really nice lock and you unlock it and it just pops open and all that tension is gone. That's what happened in my brain when I learned that, Hey, this is you. And so that changed my mind quickly to wanting to try to support that community that I found myself to be a part of. And I did some research and was trying to find out what was going on and see. I I noticed that diagnosing adults with autism late in life, like myself, you know, I'm, I'm 36. Um, that's not a very common thing and there's not a lot of information about it. And it's hard to find resources for that. Fortunately, living here in Lubbock, um, I first started off by finding a, a really good guy that I can go talk to, you know, a, a counselor and, and whatnot. And he's excellent and focuses on this type of thing. And, uh, and that's been a big help. And then I found the Burkhart Center here attached to Texas Tech. And they are an autism center for research and education. And they have this program called the Transition Academy, where they take students in ages 18 to 30, roughly, of all varying degrees along the spectrum. And they help them learn independent living skills. They have a mock apartment in their building that they teach everyone how to you know, how to cook for yourself and how to maintain the apartment and all that kind of stuff. They also do internships with local businesses and job placement to help put these people that go through the program into meaningful and satisfying jobs. And and that spoke to me. Um, I looked back at my career in the oil field and took note that the way my brain operates is probably helpful for a lot of blue collar type work because it's process oriented. It's uh, very lo- logic based, uh, analytical types of things. There's not a lot of emotion involved in it. You know, not a lot of drama and office chit chat and things like that. Don't really, I'm not interested in a lot of that. Um, I, I have a high drive to be punctual at work and make sure that I'm doing a good job and do the job the right way every time and learning from the Burkhart center that that those are very common traits among people with autism. I thought, okay, well, let's help this. Let's do this because I want people to learn about me being autistic, having known me previously and say, Oh, wow. I, you know, I didn't think about that in that kind of way and and uh you know look at my employment history and being able to keep a a very good job while being autistic so hopefully that will help other employers realize that well maybe maybe this is not something we should be afraid of if someone comes around this way and they happen to be a little bit different um you know and so that it, I mean, it just all clicked and fell into place right there between 
learning that I was and finding the Burkhart Center and the people at the Burkhart being so excited that somebody like me was wanting to help and be of service. And it just, like I said, it just all fell into place so easily that everything told me this is, you're doing the right thing and you're in the right spot and this is where you need to be. And, uh, and so we developed the Tequachi Motorsports Vocational Skills Fund and all of the money that's being donated to that is going directly to the Burkhart Center for use in the Transition Academy and to, to, help, to help raise awareness for that and to help fund that program uh, for, for those job placements and, and things of that nature. So I'm, I'm really excited about that. And I've, I've set up some, some unique ways that people can participate in that. Um, the plan is, I've got it on the website and I, I, I think I sent you a link to that. And you can either donate directly to the Burkhart Center, a one-time fee, or you can pledge a dollar amount what from one penny to however many dollars you want per mile that we complete of the mint 400 and i think that that's exciting because it does a couple of things it raises money for the burkhart it brings awareness to not only what they are doing there but also to desert racing as as a sport you know and and what we do uh, in in that sport, and it allows the people that pledge to follow along the live feed and the live tracking and interact with the team on social media as we are building up to the race and while we are at the race. So there's there's interaction involved there, and I think that'll be a lot of fun too, you know, so that so that they feel like the people that donate feel like they are a part of the team, which they are. You know, and and uh, so I'm super super stoked to have to have that opportunity and to be able to do that. Uh, I've I've got a booth space reserved during taking contingency uh, at the mint. I'll have the truck there, and people can come by and sign up for the for the pledge drive and all that. And I'm planning on you know trying to get on the local news and all that kind of stuff to kind of bring awareness to it. And we've got we've got some potential to raise a whole lot of money for this program through, through these communities. And I'm, like I said, I'm just really excited about it. And I, I can't think of anything better to do with my racing that will be of service to another community than, than what we're doing with this. I'm, I'm really excited about it. Well, that's awesome. And what is the, what's the website address? Tora, T-O-R-R-A, racing.com slash charity there's a link at the top of the page if you just go to torahracing.com but you can go direct to the to the fund page at torahracing.com slash charity excellent excellent and you're uh you're going to race the mint this year any other races you're going to try to this upcoming year any other races you're going to uh try to do so I have been invited to uh, go back to the Nora 1000 and help host their live show. I'm pretty excited about that. Um, I've been to every Nora since 2016. I got addicted and I go every year uh, in different capacities. This year I'm going to be um, hopefully helping host the, the live program. And then I am 
working with a team from the Netherlands who also race a three-quarter ton four-door, four-wheel drive Dodge truck. And they are wanting to come back or bring the truck back and race the score 1000. So that's on the books as well to help that team uh, get their truck ready and, and all their logistics and, uh, and bring it, their whole program over from the Netherlands to go race the score 1000. That's in preliminary works right now to, to do that. So it's, it's, it's a full year. In addition to that, Tora may be making a comeback. I'm talking to a few new landowners currently, and we're working on some ideas to, to try to bring uh, some, some of how I view desert racing uh, should be in Texas and, and the surrounding area. So I'm pretty excited about that as well. It's 2023 is looking like it's going to be a pretty, pretty full year for desert racing. Good. Well, keep me apprised of any race schedule that you do. Um, Absolutely. You know, we, we've got the magazine that we that we talked about. You know, we put in schedules, um, I think, in the January issue is when we try to do that. But we can pop it in any time. Uh, it's a nice thing about owning your own magazine. You know, you you can put it in, you know, a day before it goes to print. So, right. you know, Absolutely. that, that uh, keep me aware of that. And then, um, you know, I'm really happy to hear about the community, especially the autism community that you're helping with your race program. And I hope that, uh, people, you know, check out the, the website and try to get involved with the, uh, with the charity. Um, you know, and that's just going to bring more awareness, not only to off-road racing in general, but, you know, to your team as well, and also to autism. Right. Right. You know, I think I think it's it's a benefit all the way around, you know, and I think a lot of these things are able to coexist, you know, uh, and and so it, I, I find myself in a very unique position to be able to help. Uh, and and I'm extremely grateful for that because I've been provided a lot of opportunity over the last. Well, I mean, my, my whole life. I've had interesting opportunities arise and, and I try not to turn any of them down, but in off-road racing, which is my life's passion, um, the things that have come up in a short amount of time and the relationships I've been able to, to build and develop and the things I've been able to do and participate in are unbelievable. And sometimes I, I even have to pinch myself and say, man, this is crazy all this stuff, you know, when you were a seven-year-old kid 30 years ago, this was just a dream. And now you're living it, you know, and you get to go and do these things and be a part of this. And it, I, I love it. I love it. I'm so happy and thankful for all of this. And, uh, and I really enjoy being able to share it with other people. And that's, that's just so cool. So cool. Well, excellent. Well, Bryant, I want to say thank you for um, spending the time today and, uh, you know, talking with us. And I can't wait till we air this podcast. I think everybody's going to get a lot out of it. Good. I'm excited for it, Rich. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to, to talk with you about it. Uh, it means a lot to me to, to be able to, to tell people what we're doing because it gets other people involved and motivates them to, to be a part of it. Uh, that's, that's, again, that's the biggest driver for me is being of service to others. And, uh, and being able to do that through the race program and talk about it with people like you and share it with your audience, man, that's, 
It's so cool. It's awesome. Right. So if anybody out there is listening to this, make sure that uh, you check out the the website. Um, if you're interested in volunteering or helping with uh, with the race program, feel free to get hold of Bryant, and uh, you know, hopefully, we can make this work easier for you. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I appreciate the time. All right. Thank you, and uh, look forward to seeing what you're going to do in t- 2023. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I'll, I'm sure I'll be posting plenty about it. All right. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Well, that's another episode of Conversations with Big Rich. I'd like to thank you all for listening. If you could do us a favor and uh, leave us a review on any podcast service that you happen to be listening on, or send us an email or a text message or a Facebook message, and let me know uh, any ideas that you have, or if there's anybody that you have that you think would be a great guest, please forward the contact information to me so that we can uh, try to get them on. And always remember, Live life to the fullest. Enjoying life is a must. Follow your dreams and live life with all the gusto you can. Thank you.